Friends, I've been asked to give a few reflections now and then have some Q&A about the topic of perseverance in ministry. And to do that, I want to simply call your attention to four uh, simple matters. Number one, preaching. Right at the core of our ministry, we understand to be the preaching of God's Word. I know when I first came to talk to the, what was called the pulpit committee at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, I said that I was happy to see every aspect of my public ministry fail if it needed to, uh, except for the preaching of God's Word. Now, what kind of thing is that for a prospective candidate to say to a, a pulpit search committee? Well, I, I wanted to get across the idea that there is only one thing that is biblically necessary for building the church, and that's the preached Word of God. Uh, others could do everything else, but I was the one who would be specially responsible and set apart by the congregation for the public teaching of God's Word. There were no other recognized elders at the time at CHBC, so that senior pastor was going to be the only pastor. Uh, the Word of God would be the fountain of our spiritual life, both as individuals and as a congregation. And friends, that's the way it's always been. We know that theologically. God's Word has always been His chosen instrument to create, convict, convert, and conform His people. God uses His Word to create faith. Think of 1 Thessalonians 2.13. When you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, as you accepted it not as the Word of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. So the Word of God performs its work in believers. Or the very well-known Hebrews 4.12, for the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's Word also gives us new birth. James writes, in humility receive the Word implanted, which is able to save your souls. The Word saves us. Peter also claims regenerating power for God's Word in 1 Peter 1.23, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring Word of God. And this is the Word which was preached to you. So, brother pastors, you realize that there is a creating, conforming, life-giving power in God's Word. The Gospel is God's way of giving life to dead sinners and to dead churches. He doesn't have another way. If you want to work for renewed life and health and holiness in your church, then you must work for it according to God's revealed mode of operation. Otherwise, you risk running in vain. God's Word is His supernatural power for accomplishing His supernatural work. That's why our eloquence, our innovations, our programs are so much less important than we think. That's why we as pastors must give ourselves to preaching, and that's why we need to be teaching our congregations to value God's Word. You may think this pastor or that pastor did that so well, or maybe your congregation thinks you do something so well, but brothers, we preachers are just like waiters at a restaurant, servers. God is always the chef of all that is good. Uh, preaching the content and intent of God's Word 
is what God uses to call his people, to build his church. God's word builds his church, so preaching his gospel is primary. The just shall live by faith is our great good news. Christ's righteousness is given to us from outside of ourselves. The Bible tells us so. And one thing that means is that as pastors, we must give ourselves to the study of God's word. We, ministers of the Word, must give ourselves to faithfully read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the Holy Scriptures and such studies as help us to know and understand them better. It's what Paul said to Timothy, preach the Word, be instant, in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Brothers, you know one thing that you should pray for your congregation? that they require you to preach the word. What a wonderful thing for you to pray for your congregation. Give yourself to the preaching of the word. That's number one, preaching. <clears throat> number two, prayer. These are the basic matters that you should stick with in order to persevere in the ministry. In your personal life, pray. In your marriage, pray. In your home life, pray. In your elders' meetings and in your members' meetings, pray. In your public services, devote so much time to prayer that nominal Christians are bored by talking to the God they only pretend to know. You want to attract real Christians? and hungry non-Christians. Diligently call upon God by prayer for the true understanding of His Word, so that you may be able, by the Scriptures, to teach and exhort with wholesome doctrine, and to withstand and convince those who oppose the truth. Friends, prayer shows our dependence on God. It honors Him as the source of all blessings, and it reminds us that converting individuals and growing churches are His work, not ours. Jesus reassures us that if we abide in him and his words abide in us so that you may be hearing and abiding in him, then we can ask anything according to his will and know that he will give it to us. What an amazing promise. Think on that promise in John 15. So what then should you pray for in your own labors? You know how you're doing and persevering in the church God has called you to work in. What should you be praying for? What more appropriate prayers could a pastor pray for his church than the prayers of Paul? Brothers, go to Ephesians 1 and 3, or Philippians 1, or Colossians 1, or 2 Thessalonians 1, and see these prayers that Paul prays for the Christians and the churches there, and allow these prayers to be a starting point for praying Scripture more broadly and consistently. Instruct your church members that one of their most important ministries is praying for you. If you've not seen D.A. Carson's book, Prayers of Paul, get a copy of Don Carson's book. Would that be down in the Bible Society? Yeah, D.A. Carson, Praying with Paul, where he just goes through, gives an expositional message on each one of these prayers, and see how they can instruct your own praying. Another thing, pray that your preaching of the gospel would be faithful and accurate and clear. 
uh, pray for the increasing maturity of your congregation, that your local church would continue to grow in corporate love and holiness and soundness of doctrine, such that the testimony of the church and the community would be distinctively pure and attractive to unbelievers. Uh, pray for sinners to be converted and the church to be built up through your preaching of the gospel. And pray for opportunities for yourself and other church members to do personal evangelism. Pray about these things. Pray about these things publicly. Let your congregation hear you leading them in asking God for these things. Pray about such matters publicly in your service, and by so doing, advertise that you depend on God. Every time we lead our congregation in prayer, we are showing them what is not from us and what we understand to be from God. What a spiritually right and healthy thing for us to do. Why would we not spend time leading the congregation in prayer and pray personally? One of the most practical things you can do for your own personal prayer life and for the prayer lives of other church members is to assemble a church membership directory. I always say my most important book is my Bible and my second most important book is my church membership directory, which you will always find in my Bible because this is what I use as I used it this morning to try to pray through uh, some pages of it for the members of the congregation. Uh, in our directory, we have uh, even pictures. You can see there, we can turn to Ryan Townsend's picture, find Ryan, uh, and we find other information so that everybody in the church can be praying through this a page a day. We try to give people copies. Our church's membership directory has sections for members in the area, members who are unable to attend, uh, members who are out of the area, one page for elders, deacons, deaconesses, officers, staff, and interns, a section that records the children of church members, uh, supported seminarians, uh, supported workers like missionaries, uh, former staff, and even uh, former interns. So we have page after page of former interns and where they are now. Um, and we continue to pray for them regularly. Model for your congregation faithfulness in prayer through praying through the directory in your own devotional times and publicly encourage them to pray through the directory as a daily habit. And brothers, your, your prayers don't have to be long, just biblical. Uh, so this morning I was reflecting uh, on Acts chapter 14, because I'm hoping to preach from that here tomorrow. And I was reflecting on how in, in 13 and 14 and 15, Paul kept being opposed. He kept being mistreated. And so one of the things that I prayed for for myself and for my wife and for my family and prayed for for members of the church is that we would respond with God's wisdom to being mistreated. That we would not be confused by the trials that the Lord allows to come in our lives. I think your prayers for the people can be short like that. A meaningful sentence or two. If you know what's going on in this particular person's life, Pray more. Get to know the sheep in your flock well so that you can pray for them more particularly. And for those that you don't know well yet, simply pray for them what you see in your daily Bible reading. Modeling this kind of prayer for others and encouraging 
the congregation to join you in it can be a powerful influence for the growth of the church. It encourages selflessness in people's individual prayer lives. They're not just praying about the seven things that concern them in their own lives. And one of the most important benefits is that it helps to cultivate a corporate culture of prayer that will gradually come to characterize your church as people are faithful to pray. So brother, pastor, do you want to persevere in the ministry? Give yourself to prayer. Depend upon the Lord and lead your people to do the same. <clears throat> Number three, personal discipling relationships. Personal discipling relationships. And I use that word discipling distinguished from discipleship. Uh, discipleship is our following Jesus. Discipling is one portion of our following Jesus where we try to help others follow Jesus, either through evangelism or continuing to be an influence for good in the lives of fellow Christians. In many ways, if you look at those multicolored little Building Healthy Church books, uh, you can look at all those nine marks from any one of those books and kind of look out the other topics from that one. I'll tell you uh, that when I first put together nine marks of a healthy church, this is what was on my mind. This is the kind of germ of everything else that you see in nine marks. It's related to evangelism. It's related to missions. It all starts from realizing that I have a responsibility not only to follow Jesus myself, but to help others follow Jesus. And if I don't do that, I'm not loving God and loving my neighbor. So that most fundamental command we receive in Scripture, to love God and love our neighbor, for us to do that, we have to be concerned about their spiritual good. That means we work to disciple. Work for seeing personal discipling relationships in your ministry as a pastor. Cultivate them in which you regularly meet with a few people one-on-one -on -one by folding them into your family or finding another time to do them good spiritually. I don't have to say much about this. It's, it's kind of common sense, I think, among pastors. You should be sure and teach your congregation the importance of this. Uh, teach them that it's not a bad thing for you to have personal relationships as the pastor and for you to have friends in the congregation. Uh, you need them, and you minister to them, and you'll be blessed, and in turn, the whole congregation will be blessed. So pray against any tendencies to jealousy or gossip among people who, oh, they want to be the pastor's special friend. Members of your church can join you in this ministry. This is not something you need to or want to do alone. Invite people to the Sunday service and tell them when you're standing at the door afterwards or however you meet the people who are there to call you during the week to find a time to get together however it works socially where you live. And as you get to know them, you might suggest a book for you to read or, or an article or to listen to something together. And then as you think of this passage of Scripture or this maybe one of those short nine Marks books, uh, then you can begin to open up other areas of life. Uh, share about your own life, your own following the Lord, things that you're wondering about or trying to work on. Ask them about their life. Uh, be willing to offer correction and accountability as you pray with them. Whether or not you ever tell that person you're discipling them is immaterial. That just doesn't matter. The goal is to get to know them and to love them in a distinctively Christian way by doing them good spiritually. Initiate personal care and concern for others. 
And this practice of personal discipling is helpful on a number of fronts. It's good for the person being discipled because they're getting biblical encouragement and advice from someone who may be a little farther along in terms of life stage or their walk with God. So in this way, discipling is another channel through which the word can flow into the hearts of the members and be worked out into the context of personal fellowship there. But it's also good for the one who disciples, whether you are the pastor or some other elder in the church or one of the other people in the church, because it encourages you in your discipling to think not just about your own following Christ, but it shows even as you care for them that you don't have to be a super Christian to do this, but that this is a basic part of the mutual love that we should know in our congregations, the mutual care. We should understand and show that this is part of our own discipleship of Christ. Members need to know that spiritual maturity is not simply about their own private quiet times, but it's about their love for other believers and concrete expressions of that love. A good byproduct of non-staff members discipling other members is that it promotes a culture of distinctively Christian community in which people are loving one another, not simply as the world loves, but as followers of Christ who are together seeking to understand and live out the implications of his word for our lives together. These kinds of relationships help both spiritual and numerical growth. One of the reasons I'm not a great fan of churches doing what some churches that I really love do, of hiring lots of male and female workers, is because I fear they're professionalizing the Christian life. They're paying people to do Bible studies with each other. And you can do that. I mean, yes, if you're in the middle of London and it's very busy, and that's the only way it can happen, okay, you can try that. But I'll tell you what I think would be healthier don't pay anybody to do that. Or pay as few people as you can. Pay the teachers at the middle, but teach every member of the church, everyone who takes the Lord's Supper, that this is their work. It's not the extra good, but it is the basic package of following Jesus, helping other people to follow Jesus. Pastor, another healthy byproduct of your discipling of other members it helps to raise up new leaders. It begins to show people what it means to follow Christ and how they can help others to follow Christ. It's like yeast being you know, released into the batch of dough. Uh, it keeps working and will build a thick culture of discipling. It also helps the congregation to accept your leadership. Somebody once commented about our church, what good elders you have at Capitol Hill. And one brother who was serving as an elder at the time, Jeremy McLean, is now a pastor of another local church in the area. He said in response, typically insightful and humble at the same time, Jeremy said, we do have good shepherds, but we also have sheep that want to be shepherded. And brother pastor, you know how important that is. If the sheep don't want to be pastored, there's not a lot we can do. Well, all of this is helped by personal discipling relationships. Uh, the fourth thing, the fourth matter to consider in persevering in ministry, along with uh, preaching and praying and personal discipling relationships, is patience. Patience. Uh, this can express itself in a lot of ways in your ministry. Brother, I would just encourage you to run at a pace your congregation can keep up with. 
Try to work for good in your congregation by teaching them. I'm always struck by how in the pastorals Paul writes to Timothy, telling Timothy he needs to be involved in the people's lives. He needs to reprove them and exhort them and rebuke them. But he says in, in 2 Timothy 4.2 that Paul is to do all of those, those things with great patience and instruction. We're patient, not just in that we sit around twiddling our thumbs, waiting for people to catch up with where we are. But we use that time trying to instruct and persuade. If there's something you want to lead the congregation to do, consider sharing with them what you've seen in the Word that led you to think you should do that. Why should they just know that innately? Shouldn't they come to know that the same way you've come to believe that? We'll examine why you've concluded that and spend time teaching that to the people and teach them more than once. Do you remember when you were a kid and your parents would tell you to do something? Did, did they always have to only tell you once? Did you always learn something the first time they told you? Were there some things you only learned after they told you 10 or 20 times? Friends, everybody else is just like you. There are things that you need to do with your congregation that require great patience. And one of the most fundamental of those is instruct them. I think the key to displaying and actually having this kind of patience is to have a right perspective on time, eternity, and success. These would be three subpoints of point number four. Number one, time. I think most of us think only in terms of five or ten years down the road, if that. But friends, patience in the pastorate may require thinking in terms of 20 or 30 or even 40 years. What will the congregation be like? And when we think longer like that, it helps to put our difficulties into perspective. Why are you with your congregation? How long will you stay with them? Why would you leave them? Keep modeling, keep leading, keep loving. Try to have a godly perspective on time. Don't be in a hurry. Realize that you're not the only one that God can use. Sometimes, you know, I'm struck by Paul's example. I've mentioned this before. In Acts 16, he was going through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Spirit to speak the word in Asia. How strange is that? And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. What did he have against the Bithynians? Why, why did he do that? Are there just no elect in Bithynia? But then it is interesting, if you keep that in mind, when you go to 1 Peter and you read in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Well, now, how on earth could there be these people in Bithynia who are believers if Paul didn't go to them? God must have had more people than just Paul that he was working through. 
Friends, sometimes we can lie in our urgency. We make it sound like it's all about us or our ministry or the ministry of the people we're talking to. When I praise God, most people who are Christians in Washington, D.C. are not even members of our church. They're in other churches. The evangelization of Washington, D.C. does not fall on our congregation alone. God has his people. He will work in his way. You know, one of the ways that I think the spreading of the gospel has gone wrong in not understanding a, a godly view of time is we've come up with a kind of false carnal urgency. You know, the student generation, the student volunteer movement and the watchword, the evangelization of the world in this generation, I think that's a problem. I think it's bad. The evangelization of the world, now that's good. That sounds like Jesus. In this generation, see, now you're opposing Jesus. Jesus specifically said he was going to be with them till the end of the age. And I can get carnal 19-year-olds excited about things that we could do in our generation. Those other generations didn't get done. We'll get it done. Well, yeah, I understand how you can stir people up with that. And they'll burn out. It's like the tortoise and the hare. Do you want to persevere in ministry? Have a more godly understanding of time. Have a smaller view of yourself. A bigger view of God. Pray. Give yourself. Don't fall prey to carnal advertising methods. And don't become a part of some spiritual Ponzi scheme yourself. Number two, that leads us into eternity. If you want to have this patience, you need a godly view of time. You also need a godly view of eternity. One day, we will be held as pastors accountable to God for the way we have led and fed His lambs. All our ways are before Him. He will know if we used our congregation wrongly. He will know if we led them or left them prematurely for our own convenience and benefit. He'll know if we drove His sheep too hard. Shepherd the flock in a way you won't be ashamed of on the day of the Lord. Colossians 3, 23. Do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Understand the accountability that we have before the Lord for the flock for whom God shed his own blood, it says in Acts 20. And then number three of success. Have a, a godly perspective on success. Be careful. If you define success in terms of size, then your desire for numerical growth will probably outrun your patience with the congregation and maybe even your fidelity to biblical methods. Either your ministry among the people will be cut short or you will resort to methods that draw a crowd without preaching the true gospel. You will trip over the hurdle of ambition whether yours or those of your fellow leaders around you who just use you. But if you'll define success in terms of faithfulness, then, brothers, you are in a position to persevere. You can keep going. You're released from the demand of immediately observable results, freeing you for faithfulness to the gospel's message and method, leaving numbers to the Lord. It seems ironic at first, but trading in size for faithfulness as the yardstick of success often is the path to legitimate numerical growth. So many fruitful ministers I've seen 
over the years. I promise if you came to Capitol Hill Baptist Church in 1994 when I came there, and you watched the ministry there for a year, one thing you would not be is impressed. It's just a small elderly congregation in a building that was falling down. A young minister who looked like he should probably be a little bit more of a professor, a little full of himself and sarcastic, like he just lived in Cambridge for seven years, <laughs> dealing with a lot of retired blue-collar workers. What was going on there? Well, the Lord had his own thing he was doing. And brother pastors, I can tell you over the years, every year I have seen people converted and ministers raised up who in turn go and see other ministers raised up and they see other ministers raised up and it just goes on and on and on. That to me sounds like gospel ministry. It's encouraging enough that it is easy to persevere at in one sense because you just know what you're called to do is pretty simple and straightforward and God will bring the results. Friends, confidence in Christian ministry doesn't come from personal competence or charisma or experience. It doesn't come from having the right programs in place or jumping on the bandwagon of the latest ministry fad. God deliver us from spontaneous baptisms. It's about to ruin our denomination. It's about to make me leave our denomination to find a faithful one. It's just a new wave of Phineism trying to cover up the gospel in America with the best of intentions. People are obscuring from the world what it means to be a Christian. Friends, success and confidence in the Christian ministry doesn't even come from going to a good internship at UCCD or Rock or ECC. No, it comes from being a pastor who depends upon the power of the Spirit to make us adequate through the equipping ministry of Christ's Word. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Good for you to reflect on later. How does the Spirit make us adequate? What instrument does He give us? He uses God's Word. 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So the word of God is not just what we use in our ministry to others. Brothers, it's how we are equipped for every good work. The one thing necessary is the power of God's word. Only the Bible is God's perfect word. That's why preaching and prayer will always be paramount. No matter what fad tops the charts this year or next, take your ministry on the power of the gospel. Friends, success is faithfulness in these simple matters. It is staying focused on these amidst the whirl of competing priorities. So be patient. I think one of the weird things about my ministry is if you listen to any of my sermons online and they're up there for the last 28 years, you could almost not tell what year they're preached in. I've been saying the same thing the whole time. Friends, it's just, it's this same message. 
I literally have given messages like this one for decades at this point. I, I have nothing new to say. Nothing here that I've said has been original. This is exactly the kind of stuff that faithful pastors have always been saying. So to summarize the four things that I've said to you about how you can persevere in ministry, to encourage you in ministry, preach and pray, love and stay. Preach and pray, love, building personal discipling relationships, and stay patience. Well, I've spoken for quite a while, and you've been very patient, preaching, praying, personal discipling, patience. One day before the American Revolution, there was a day of remarkable gloom and darkness and eclipse over the New England states, known for years afterwards simply as the dark day, a day when the light of the sun was slowly extinguished. The legislature of Connecticut was in session, and as its members saw the unexpected and at the time unaccountable darkness coming on, they shared in the general awe and terror. It was supposed by many that the last day, the day of judgment, had come. Someone in the consternation of the hour moved an adjournment. And then there arose this old Puritan legislator, Mr. Davenport of Stamford. And he said that if the last day had come, he desired to be found at his place doing his duty. And therefore moved that candles be brought in so that the house could proceed with its duty. There was a quietness in that man's mind, the quietness of heavenly wisdom and inflexible willingness to obey present duty. Pastors, we should do our duty in all things like the old Puritan. We cannot do more. We should never wish to do less. The ministry has private discouragements and public disappointments aplenty. And God's kindness to it often has compensating blessings in this life. Like hearing you all introduce yourself and learning more of your ministries literally around the world. But we will never be faithful ministers in anything other than appearance if we only consider the ministry in terms of this life. That's why in so many lectures that I give to pastors, I quote John Brown in his letter of paternal counsel to one of his pupils who was newly ordained over a small congregation. He wrote, I know the vanity of your heart, that you will feel mortified that your congregation is very small in comparison with those of your brethren around you. But assure yourself on the word of an old man that when you come to give an account of them to the Lord Christ at his judgment seat, you will think you have had enough. Brothers, we must remember what momentous work we're about. And on that one day, he will, even through the ministries of brothers like you and me, bring many sons to glory. So live and minister in light of that day. Let me pray for us, and then we'll have some conversation. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you would give us wisdom, even as we think now together. Shape our hearts. Cause us to be faithful in following you. Cause us to be faithful in every aspect of our lives. We look forward to the fulfillment of all of your promises in Christ. 
Help us to run towards you in confidence of your faithfulness to fulfill all that you've promised. Use us in that end as we minister your word in the lives of those whom you love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.